Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Participants will be in a listen-only mode. Afterwards, we will conduct a question and answer session. At that time, if you have a question, please press the 1 followed by the 4 on your telephone. If at any time during the conference you need to reach an operator, please press star 0. As a reminder, this conference is being recorded Thursday, October 29, 2020. I would now like to turn the conference over to Worthing Jackman, President and CEO. Please go ahead. Great. Thank you, Operator, and good morning. I'd like to welcome everyone to this conference call to discuss our third quarter results and our outlook for Q4 and to provide some early thoughts for 2021. I'm joined this morning, safely distanced, by Marianne Whitney, our CFO. As noted in our earnings release, Sequential improvement in solid waste volumes and increased recovered commodity values drove better than expected results in the third quarter and provide incremental momentum going forward. We believe our strong operating results, financial performance, and frontline support continue to differentiate waste connections during this year's unprecedented health, economic, and social challenges. Higher margin flow through from improving revenue during the quarter provided better than expected adjusted EBITDA margin and adjusted free cash flow generation. Adjusted EBITDA as a percentage of revenue in the period was approximately 40 basis points above our outlook in spite of 30 basis points higher than expected discretionary frontline and incentive compensation costs impacting the quarter, which resulted from our more than $35 million commitment in incremental costs, primarily directed to discretionary supplemental pay for frontline employees. Solid waste margins expanded by almost 200 basis points compared to the year-ago period, with collection, transfer, and disposal accounting for 80% of that increase. Moreover, year-to-date adjusted free cash flow of $778 million, or 19.2% of revenue, increased year-over-year, putting us firmly on track to exceed the adjusted free cash flow outlook for the full year that we communicated in August, and positioning us for double-digit growth in adjusted free cash flow in 2021. Before we get into much more detail, let me turn the call over to Marianne for our forward-looking disclaimer and other housekeeping items. Thank you, Worthing, and good morning. The discussion during today's call includes forward-looking statements made pursuant to the safe harbor provisions of the U.S. Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995, including forward-looking information within the meeting of applicable Canadian securities laws. Actual results could differ materially from those made in such forward-looking statements due to various risks and uncertainties. Factors that could cause actual results to differ are discussed both in the cautionary statement included in our October 28th earnings release and in greater detail in Waste Connections filings with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and the Securities Commissions or similar regulatory authorities in Canada. You should not place undue reliance on forward-looking statements as there may be additional risks of which we are not presently aware, 
or that we currently believe are immaterial, which could have an adverse impact on our business. We make no commitment to revise or update any forward-looking statements in order to reflect events or circumstances that may change after today's meeting. On the call, we will discuss non-GAAP measures such as adjusted EBITDA, adjusted net income attributable to waste connections on both a dollar basis and per diluted share, and adjusted free cash flow. Please refer to our earnings releases for reconciliation of such non-GAAP measures to the most comparable GAAP measure. Management uses certain non-GAAP measures to evaluate and monitor the ongoing financial performance of our operations. Other companies may calculate these non-GAAP measures differently. I will now turn the call back over to Worthing. Thank you, Marianne. We're extremely pleased by our performance in the third quarter, as our results reflect both the resilience of our solid waste business and the accountability of our over 18,000 employees who have stepped up during such a challenging year. Better than expected 390 basis points sequential solid waste volume improvement in Q3 as compared to Q2 drove strong results in the period. The rates of recovery in solid waste revenue largely reflect the extent to which the reopening process has affected economic activity levels following slowdowns due to the closure restrictions or requirements in effect since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. The shape and pace of recovery of lost revenue continues to vary by geography, market size, and customer mix. The volume improvement we saw in Q3 was most pronounced in regions which had experienced the greatest impacts from COVID, with Canada showing 750 basis points sequential improvement in our eastern region, which includes the Northeast US, up approximately 600 basis points sequentially. In the aggregate through Q3, about 68% of solid waste commercial customers and 57% of associated revenue in competitive markets we track that had suspended or reduced service had reached out for the resumption of service or increase in frequency, up from 53% and 42% respectively at the end of Q2. Not surprisingly, the most impacted regions accounted for the majority of the Q3 increase as the less affected markets had already led the commercial revenue recovery we saw in Q2. And the rate of growth in those markets has since slowed in many cases hitting a near-term plateau in the range of 60 to 65% revenue recovery levels. While the shape and pace of recovery may have varied by region and market, our focus on quality of revenue and cost control has been consistent, as evidenced by the strong underlying solid waste margin expansion during the third quarter, in spite of about 80 basis points in additional discretionary frontline and incentive compensation costs. We are well on the way to meeting our commitment of over $35 million this year in incremental employee support, primarily directed at supplemental pay for our frontline employees. Our safety-focused, servant leadership-driven culture has guided Waste Connection's response to this year's unprecedented health, economic, and social challenges. And that response has resulted in higher engagement, lower voluntary turnover, and improved safety, providing for execution at a high level. Our safety-related incident rates continue to decline, even as economies reopen and volumes return, such that we are seeing incident rate levels at multi-year lows. These improvements have been augmented by a more than 20% reduction in voluntary turnover year-to-date, as another benefit of a more stable, experienced workforce is fewer incidents and accidents. And we are excited to further improve on these trends as we complete our fleet-wide rollout of the next generation of onboard camera technology that incorporates machine vision and AI. 
Our commitment to the health, welfare, and development of our employees, environmental stewardship, and the support of our local communities are detailed in our 2020 Sustainability Report, released earlier this week, which includes long-term aspirational targets and our commitment of over $500 million over a 15-year period for investments to meet or exceed our targets. These investments primarily focus on reducing emissions, increasing resource recovery of both recyclable commodities and biogas, reducing reliance on offsite disposal for leachate, increasing employee engagement, and further improving our industry-leading safety performance. At Waste Connection, sustainability initiatives have always been integral to and consistent with our strategy and focus on long-term value creation for our shareholders. As such, the investments will be undertaken in the ordinary course of business with attractive ROI expectations and are not additive to what we consider to be typical capital expenditures. Looking at acquisitions, we're on pace for another solid year of activity in spite of COVID-related constraints. In fact, the pace of activity has increased over the past few months. Year-to-date, we have signed or closed 16 acquisitions in 11 states in the U.S. and one province in Canada, totaling approximately $135 million in annualized revenue. They include, as noted last quarter, a new market collection, transfer, and recycling company with about $40 million in annualized revenue, and more recently, another new market collection and transfer company with about $25 million in annualized revenue, both of which are on track to close mid-Q4. Dialogue remains as active as we've seen in years, especially with some tax-driven sellers interested in getting deals closed by year-end. Our strong operating performance, free cash flow generation, and balance sheet strength positioned us for a double-digit percentage increase in our quarterly cash dividend. As announced yesterday, our board of directors authorized a 10.8% increase in our regular quarterly cash dividend, our 10th consecutive double-digit percentage increase since initiating the dividend in 2010. Still, our dividend remains at less than 25% of adjusted free cash flow. That level, coupled with liquidity of over $2 billion and leverage of about 2.3 times net debt to EBITDA, provides tremendous flexibility to fund both continued outside acquisition activity and opportunistic share repurchases. Now, I'd like to pass the call to Marianne to review more in depth the financial highlights of the third quarter and provide a detailed outlook for Q4. I will then wrap up and provide some early thoughts on 2021 before heading into Q&A. Thank you, Worthing. In the third quarter, revenue was 1.39 billion or about $20 million above our outlook on better than expected solid waste volumes during the period and higher recovered commodity values. Revenue on a reported basis was down $22 million or 1.6% year over year. On E&P waste activity down 43 million year over year. Acquisitions completed since the year ago period contributed about 47.1 million of revenue in the quarter or about 44.2 million net of divestitures. Solid waste price plus volume growth on a same store basis in Q3 was negative 2%, reflecting an improvement of 330 basis points from Q2 and ranging from positive 2.6% in our mostly exclusive West Coast markets to negative 4.5% to 5% in our most COVID-impacted Eastern and Canada regions. Pricing growth overall in Q3 was 3.7% including core price of 4.1%, partially offset by a 40 basis point reduction in surcharges. 
pricing range from 2.6% in our more exclusive markets in the Western region to an average of over 4% in our more competitive region. Solid waste volume growth in Q3 was down 5.7%, ranging from flat volumes in our Western region to down approximately 9% in our most impacted regions in the Northeast US and Canada. As we have noted, our volumes largely reflect the pace and shape of shutdown and reopening activity across our markets, which varies and depends on geography, size, and customer mix in each market. Looking at year-over-year results in the periods on a same-store basis, we saw sequential improvement in Q3 from Q2 in solid waste in every line of business. Commercial collection revenue, which was down 7.6% in Q2, improved by over 500 basis points to down approximately 2.5% in Q3. Excluding the most impacted markets in the Northeast and Canada, commercial collection revenue was up about 30 basis points year over year. Roll-off revenue decreased approximately 8% on pulls down about 7% year over year and revenue per pull down about 1% on lower weights. This compares to revenue and pulls down 13% and 12% respectively in Q2. Solid waste landfill average price per ton increased 4% year over year, on revenue down about 2% on a same store basis, as total tons declined about 6% year over year, about 400 basis points better than Q2. Q3 MSW tons were down about 3%, special waste was down 9%, and C&D was down 12%. Looking at ENP waste activity, we reported 23.6 million in ENP waste revenue in the third quarter, down about 64% year over year, in line with our expectations on reduced drilling activity, which appears to have found bottom around current levels with rig counts up nominally in recent weeks. Looking at Q3 revenues from recovered commodities, that is, recycled commodities, landfill gas, and renewable energy credits or RIMs, Excluding acquisitions, in the aggregate, they were up about 25% year-over-year due to both higher RINs and higher recycled commodity revenues due to strong fiber values. Adjusted EBITDA for Q3, as reconciled in our earnings release, was $432.6 million, about $13 million above our outlook due to higher revenue and stronger flow-through from returning disposal and commercial collection volumes, as well as higher recovered commodity values. Adjusted EBITDA as a percentage of revenue was 31.1% in Q3, about 40 basis points above our outlook and down 30 basis points year over year. A 190 basis point year over year improvement in solid waste, including a 30 basis point benefit from recycling and RIMS, was more than offset by a 130 basis point drag from lower ENP waste activity an 80 basis point impact from discretionary COVID-related frontline and incentive comp, plus another 10 basis points from the margin dilutive impact of acquisitions completed since the year ago period. Fuel expense in Q3 was about 3.4% of revenue, down about 40 basis points year over year, on fewer gallons, lower rates, and a CNG credit of about $900,000. We averaged approximately $2.33 per gallon for diesel in the quarter, down about 10% or $0.27 from the year-ago period. Our effective tax rate for the third quarter was 17.6%, slightly lower than expected. 
gap net income per diluted share was 60 cents and adjusted net income per diluted share was 72 cents in the third quarter. Adjusted net income in Q3 primarily excludes intangibles amortization and other acquisition related items. Year-to-date adjusted free cash flow of $778.4 million, or 19.2% of revenue and 63% of adjusted EBITDA, was up $15.5 million year-over-year in spite of lower EBITDA. Given the benefits of working capital, including reduced DSOs, and the deferral of payroll taxes as provided for by the CARES Act. As noted earlier, given our outsized conversion of adjusted EBITDA to adjusted free cash flow, we are well on our way to exceed the full-year outlook for adjusted free cash flow of $805 million to $835 million that we communicated in August. Debt outstanding at quarter end remained at about $4.7 billion. As Worthing noted, total available liquidity remains over $2 billion, including cash balances of $859 million. Our leverage ratio, as defined in our credit agreement, was about 2.7 times debt to EBITDA, and on a net debt basis, our leverage remained at around 2.3 times debt to EBITDA at the end of Q3. Our current weighted average cost of debt is approximately 3.3%, with essentially all of our debt at fixed rates. I will now review our outlook for the fourth quarter, 2020. Before I do, we'd like to remind everyone once again that actual results may vary significantly based on risks and uncertainties outlined in our safe harbor statement and filings we've made with the SEC and the Securities Commissions or similar regulatory authorities in Canada. We encourage investors to review these factors carefully. Our outlook assumes no significant change in underlying economic trends. It also excludes any impact from additional acquisitions that may close during the remainder of the year and expensing of transaction-related items during the period. Revenue in Q4 is estimated to be approximately $1.335 billion. We expect solid waste price of approximately 4% and volumes of approximately negative 6%. Although we haven't seen a weakening in volumes, we think it's appropriate to remain cautious as we have throughout the pandemic, given concerns about additional shutdowns or other restrictions potentially being imposed, especially as we head into the winter months. In addition, we expect revenue from both resource recovery activities and ENP waste to remain similar to Q3. Adjusted EBITDA in Q4 is estimated to be approximately 400 million, or about 30% of revenue, which would be down 80 basis points on a reported basis and down just 30 basis points year over year, adjusted for the 50 basis point benefit from CNG in 2019, which resulted from the two-year catch-up in CNG credits in that period. Our outlook cautiously assumes that certain costs, such as medical, which was down 30 basis points as a percentage of revenue in Q3, become headwinds in Q4 in the event that deferred or discretionary individual spending patterns should change. Depreciation and amortization expense for the fourth quarter is estimated to be about 13.8% of revenue. Of that amount, amortization of intangibles in the quarter is estimated to be about $32.5 million, or about $0.09 cents per diluted share net of taxes. Interest expense, net of interest income in Q4, is estimated to be approximately $40 million. And finally, our effective tax rate in Q4 is estimated to be at about 20.5%.
And now let me turn the call back over to Worthing for some final remarks before Q&A. Thank you, Marianne. Again, we are extremely pleased with our year-to-date performance, particularly given the challenge of projecting the business and managing through COVID-driven uncertainties, which have been amplified by the headwinds of high-margin decrementals from lower EMP waste activity and negative solid waste volumes. In spite of it all, we have continually raised the bar and consistently beaten our expectations. Our Q3 results and Q4 outlook would put us about $60 million of revenue, $25 million in adjusted EBITDA, and 20 basis points in adjusted EBITDA margin above the full year outlook we provided in August without the benefit of expected incremental acquisition contribution and with strong free cash flow conversion. In this evolving environment, our employees have remained focused on controlling what they can with an uncompromising commitment to protecting the health and safety of their colleagues, providing the highest level of customer service, and supporting the communities we have the privilege to serve. I'd like to reiterate how incredibly proud I am for the way our team has supported our frontline and their families and delivered on their commitments to drive these results. We've always maintained that at Waste Connections, it's our people who are our greatest differentiator, and this year has made that all the more important and apparent. As we look ahead, we expect to emerge from this challenging period better positioned financially with tremendous flexibility with respect to capital allocation and operationally with higher operating leverage and solid waste and both safety-related incidents and voluntary turnover levels already achieving multi-year lows. We expect to expand reported margins in 2021 and capitalize on additional growth opportunities. Moreover, given the strength of our year-to-date adjusted free cash flow, we are well positioned for double-digit percentage growth in adjusted free cash flow in 2021. Although we won't provide formal outlook for 2021 until next February, we're able to provide some early thoughts, assuming no change in the current economic environment. In summary, we believe 2021 likely sets up for solid waste price price growth to range between 3.5% and 4%, with volumes expected to turn positive after we anniversary the start of the pandemic. Price-led organic growth and high flow-through from improving volumes should drive underlying margin expansion in solid waste collection, transfer, and disposal, in spite of the hopeful return of certain discretionary expenses that we either reduced or eliminated this year due to the pandemic or the normalization of other expenses that declined as a result of the shutdowns. In addition, depending on the level of activity between now and year end, we could enter 2021 with more than 2% revenue growth in place from completed acquisitions. We would expect to have better visibility on the tone of the economy and expected acquisition contribution EMP waste activity, and recovered commodity-driven revenue in February when we provide our formal outlook for the upcoming year. We appreciate your time today, and I'll now turn this call over to the operator to open the lines up for your questions. Operator? Thank you. If you would like to register a question, please press the 1 followed by the 4 on your telephone. You will hear a three-tone prompt to acknowledge your request. If your question has been answered and you would like to withdraw your registration, please press the 1 followed by the 3. One moment, please, for the first question. 
And our first question comes from the line of Tyler Brown with Raymond James. Please proceed with your question. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Hey, Worthing. So thanks for the details um, about the recovery. It feels like things are, you know, kind of on track here. And I appreciate that that 68% of the paused commercial customers have returned. And maybe you guys gave this figure a couple quarters ago, but what percent of the commercial book is that applicable to? And at this point, based on the intelligence that you have, how do you feel about that last 30%? Is it structurally gone or do you still feel like there's some of that will come back? Yeah, so Tyler, good question. So where we track it, obviously, is where we have a sales force that we can track account by account and account by account recovery and the, and the payouts for that. That probably accounts for about 80% of our commercial business. Because obviously in markets where we have um, uh, franchises, uh, we do not have salespeople. Uh, we have 100% of the business. Um, and so that accounts for about 80% or so of the commercial activity. Um, look, it's hard to say with regards to those that have not returned yet. We definitely assume that, you know, there's some permanently closed shops, right? Um, and it's, it's hard to see, hard to anticipate or project uh, that those shops reopening and returning. So if this is a new jumping off point, you know, perhaps there's incremental positive volume growth next year. If through another stimulus plan, those shops try to get recharged uh, and reopened. But um, without a doubt, there'll be casualties uh, in small business as a result of the pandemic. And we're not going to sit here and project a percentage recovery in that because to your point, I think some of that's permanently gone. And Tyler, just to follow up on that, I would say that we continue to believe that customer cancellation statistics aren't a good barometer because we continue to not see a material difference year over year. And therefore, and to Worthing's point, we know that there are, there are cancellations coming. Okay. Yeah. No, that's very helpful. And then, Marianne, so just, you know, obviously margins were very good this quarter, um, particularly at the core level. And I think you mentioned it right at the, at the tail end. I just want to make sure it's clear. So in Q3, healthcare was, was actually a tailwind. We didn't see that actually shift over to a headwind, but you are expecting it as a headwind, presumably in Q4 and then probably into 21. Yes, Tyler, that's, that's a fair way to characterize it. We had talked about the fact that in Q2, uh, it was a nice tailwind, and we said that we, we expected that as people started getting out more, you know, this would be one of those costs that went away as a result of shutdowns, right? Mm -hmm. So it impacted behavior, and we thought that that would behavior would begin to normalize over time. And what I'd say is, you know, Q3 versus Q2, some of those costs came back, but it continued to be a tailwind. And yes, specifically, I mentioned that, you know, if you're thinking about sequentially, why is the margin, the underlying margin expansion in solid waste in our projection, our outlook for Q4, less than Q3? That would be an example of what we're factoring in. To the extent that we're wrong and it doesn't come back as much as we thought, it would continue to be a tailwind in Q4. Okay. Okay. And then, so this is a conceptual question. You guys talked about it a little bit. 2020 has been very bizarre on many fronts. I think we could all agree on that, but particularly with all of the movement in costs, you guys talked about expanding solid waste margin. So that into 21, despite all of the idiosyncratic things, travel, right? Healthcare, things like COVID supplemental comp kind of maybe easing, but is there any way to kind of just frame 
for us, what we're kind of thinking next year from a solid waste margin perspective, is that a 50 basis points or just any, any just, you know, high level thoughts there? Yeah, uh, good question, because we were clear in our script that we expect reported margins to expand next year. And to the extent that EMP just remains flat year over year, um, uh, or even at current, if it rains at current run rates, even, um, I mean, that obviously provides or could provide a, a 40 or a 50 basis point headwind to reported margins next year. And so for us to say that um, reported margins are expanding, to your point, it means the solid waste margins are expected to expand north of 50 basis points next year. Okay. Okay. Very helpful. And just last uh, quick modeling question. So, Marianne, just based on the deals signed or closed, just from a modeling perspective right now, based on everything, how much acquired revenue should we think about in 21? Sure. So, if you think about 90, 95 million in, in 21, and, and the cadence being, you know, kind of by quarter, 30, 30, you know, 15, 15 is a fair way, or 2015 is a fair way to think about it. And then probably there'll be some additional things that likely get done this year that will be added right. to that uh, as we give formal guidance in February. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. And our next question comes from the line of Kyle White with Deutsche Bank. Please proceed with your question. Pardon me, Mr. White, your line is open. I'm sorry, Mr. Kyle White, could you please check the mute function on your phone? I'm sorry, sir, we're unable to hear you. We'll move on to the next question. And our next question comes from the line of Jeff Goldstein with Morgan Stanley. Please proceed with your question. Hey, good morning. I'm going to ask the recovery morning, question. Just morning. Uh, I just want to ask the recovery question a little different. So just looking at the pace here, volumes were down 5.7% in the quarter, which is better than you thought, but also in line with I know what you had disclosed in July, basically implying trends have been flat. And then now your guidance for 4Q is, is a similar number. So... I guess just kind of bigger picture, is it, do we need a vaccine? Are you looking for additional maybe stimulus post-election? Just like, what do we need here really to get volumes moving towards flat again? Yeah, well, again, I think it's the anniversary, uh, as we said all along, of the pandemic, right? I mean, we'll, the pandemic started hitting numbers um, in middle of March. Um, and so once we get through Q1, and we fully anniversary um, the, uh, the effects of the pandemic, volume should start turning positive in Q2. That's not dependent on a vaccine. That's not uh, dependent on a stimulus. Um, that's just math. Uh, because if you look at the rate of recovery since the lows of Q2, our revenue run rate and in, in every metric is much stronger than what was reported in Q2 this year. And so just running flat to current the current levels of activity produces positive volumes beginning in Q2. Now, to the extent that the economy reopens because of, of, of a vaccine or because of a stimulus plan that, that provides some, some juice to the, to the activity, then that's just, you know, further improvements in reported volumes in, the, in, in that year. Okay, that's helpful. 
And then so it's I, like a I was looking for some more insightful than math, but it is math. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Um, and then I was just hoping for some more color on the, the temporary roll-off side, especially around housing, and if that at all has impacted the, the improvement uh, down 8%, which I think was about a 500 basis points uh, acceleration. Um, just given what we're seeing kind of in the strength of the housing market and what we're hearing around continued supply constraints there, are, are you seeing any type of benefit? Do you think it could continue? Just, just what are you seeing on temporary roll-off, really? Sure. So, so to your point, we did see nice sequential improvement in roll-off. I'd say that you know, certainly that the housing can be a factor on that. There's also just the reopening. And I look at, for instance, where that sequential improvement was strongest, and it was in Canada, by way of example, where you had the, the whole holistic shutdowns of economies and there was arguably some pent-up demand when they turned things back on. And we saw construction projects that had been put on hold get restarted. And so I'd say that was as much a factor, if not more, than, for instance, the, the housing numbers getting a little better. I'd say the other thing that stands out is I just think in general, are you know, the best volumes we continue to see are on the West Coast, where I'd say that you know, over the past few quarters, we have seen that that return of housing did help those numbers. So it's a, it's a factor, but it's one of a few different factors that I think are driving that sequential improvement. It's, I know it feels like this has been a dog year uh, with regards to, to remembering things, but um, recall when the, when the shutdowns happened in Q2, not every, not every state or shut down construction as well, right? Um, Washington, for instance, was a state that shut down uh, construction as part of the pandemic. And so you saw a great a large snapback in Q3, sequentially Q2 to Q3 in Washington. Canada, the same way. We look at Ontario or Quebec especially, which shut down construction activity as part of the closures. And to Mary Ann's point, as those reopened, obviously you have a snapback sequential improvement Q2 to Q3 in that area as well. All right, appreciate the color. And our next question comes from the line of Sean Eastman with KeyBank. Please proceed with your question. Hi, this is Hamza Jaffer speaking for, for Sean Eastman. I just wanted to turn the More. question over to volume. Uh, sure. Uh, so uh, last quarter we talked about a monthly volume trend. I was just curious if you could give, if you could give us more color on September. And we've seen this deurbanization trend uh, this year, uh, but it's been uh, it remains to be seen. I was just curious if you could think waste connections has been benefiting from this dynamic with such a significant amount of volume driven by secondary markets, and whether you think this could be a nice tailwind for the business in the coming years. Yeah, well, the first in the secondary markets, you know, as we laid out in, in, the, in the script, you know, a lot of those markets were not as heavily impacted uh, in COVID um, and were kind of early to recovery to recover what most of what they had lost uh, in Q2. And that was a big contributor to Q2's uh, uplift. Um, we still continue to see uh, volume strength in those marketplaces and, and in many of those markets, we expect positive volume potentially in, in Q4. Um, and so, you know, while most of those inflected that flat volume year over year in Q3, that continued momentum could turn positive in Q4. Um, with regards to the, the current trends, 
you know, again, I think we laid out in our, in our outlook that we still expect volume uh, declines to be about 6%. Uh, we're probably running a little bit better than that as we sit here today. But as Marianne pointed out, it's, it's important to stay cautious as you, as you look ahead, um, given the winter season that we're entering into. And so obviously, if the trends that we see right now continue uh, through the balance of the quarter, uh, we should set ourselves up for you know, a nice repeat uh, on the top line. Uh, with regards to uh, to revenue reported versus expectations. Got it. Thank you. And then just uh, level setting on the M&A environment. Clearly, the election and policy is a big variable. So just as we look out into 2021 and 2022, what are the primary watch points there in terms of whether we see greater or less than normal acquisition activity for risk connection? Sure. You know, if you look at um, if you look at this year, I mean, look. In spite of pandemic, uh, this will be an above average year in total revenue activity for us. Uh, and what I would call an average year, a typical year with regards to the number of transactions. I mean, this year we'll get probably three or four transactions done in that you know, 25 to 40 million range. We'll probably get a dozen or more tuck-ins done as well. Um, so to be doing kind of 16 to, to 20 or so transactions I'd call it a typical year, which is, again, remarkable given the backdrop that we were in. I say that as a setup because, you know, we've also said a lot of our transactions are, are, are kind of lineage transition uh, uh, driven. And, you know, those will continue to, to influence, um, you know, the sale of, uh, of companies in 21 and beyond. Um, obviously, exhaustion uh, can also lead to folks' desire to sell. I mean, it's tougher and tougher to it was tough for running a business before the pandemic, given many constraints, and the pandemics made that even more, um, you know, magnified uh, for many for many operators. So exhaustion can also lead to that. Obviously, tax-driven uh, transactions as well. That's driven some people to come off the sidelines this year and get some things done. Uh, and to the extent that you know the the tax dialogue in 21, if it, if if tax law changes in 21, is it retroactive or not? Uh, you know. Do they, like in the, in the Trump uh, period, in the first two years, took them two years to get tax reform in place? So do, do they get it done in 22, which might drive people to get deals done in 21? It's uncertain. But look, what drives our typical transactions uh, with second, third, or fourth generation type businesses is lineage transition. And we expect uh, m and activity to continue uh, beyond this year. Got it. Thank you very much. Uh, congratulations on the excellent quarter. Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Mark Neville with Scotia Bank. Please proceed with your question. Hi, good morning. Um, thanks for taking my questions in first. Uh, good morning. First, uh, great quarter and uh, generally great uh, job mentioned through the pandemic, so uh, good on you. Um, maybe just going back to the recovery, um, and I apologize if you touched on some of these points, but it's just from a, a high level, I'm just curious, in the markets that were sort of first to open, um, are you still seeing sort of month over month, week over week, sort of sequential improvements in the volume recovery? Or is there certain markets where you're, you're sort of finally sort of hitting a ceiling? And then, like a similar type question to the markets that are slower to open or reclosing like here in Montreal, I'm just sort of curious, sort of how, not Montreal specific, but generally, how much sort of room um, upward is there before you sort of get to sort of, you know, a more normalized or sort of to where the, the other markets may be. Sure. So, so happy, happy to cover that, Mark. 
so what we said was that in the aggregate, the, the recovery of revenue in the commercial markets we track is about 57%. And I would break that into the, the ones that you described had, had come back more quickly and were less impacted. So the less impacted markets are in the low to mid 60s, about between 60 and 65% recovered, as contrasted with what we would describe as the more impacted, Canada, the Northeast US, are in the low 50s. So that's the delta we're seeing that remains between those, those two buckets, if you will. And to your question about the, the rate of recovery, we've absolutely seen that slow down and, and in those less impacted markets. And that is Worthing described in his remarks that really what led the Q2 recovery were those markets and that what led Q3 were the more impacted markets. We talked about the sequential improvement in Canada, for instance, being 750 basis points overall volumes and the east our eastern region 600 basis points you contrast that with say a 300 basis point improvement in in a place like the, the west coast or our southern region i look at you know individual markets some a place like toronto which q through q2 had about 30 percent recovery is now in that low to mid 50. so a perfect example of one of those impacted markets coming back you know strong in q3 and I'd contrast that with, for instance, North Texas in a place like Dallas, where through Q2, they were already back to the low to mid 50s. And now they're back to the low to mid 60s, again, in line with the average we're seeing in those markets. So I think that speaks to the flattening. And again, we don't, we don't know where the ceiling is. We describe it as a near-term plateauing because that's what we've been seeing over the past few months. Yeah, no, okay, that's, that's super helpful. I'm sorry, the, in those markets, you know, the, the low 60s or 60, 65 Dallas. Um, again, is there still, again, maybe just, just answer the question, but is there still sort of sequential improvement happening there or is it you know, really just leveled off almost completely? So again, again, to be clear, I mean, we saw it throughout Q3 and there's still yeah. opportunity, right? Because right. You, you have various markets within those buckets. And, and for instance, New York City, you know, we I talk about this, Hey, these impacted markets are on average around, you know, back 50, 55%. New York City's still the mid 30s. And so it's so, our fastest growing market right now. <laughs> right. So great point. Yeah. Smaller base, but fast growing. So yeah. yes, there's still absolutely opportunity. We're just talking at high level in, in what we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Again, it's just pretty fluid. So um, again, I, I don't want to get too, too deep, but I, I appreciate all that. Um, maybe just on the, on the free cash for next year. Or oh, sorry, go ahead. But the week-to-week -week trends, for instance, in New York City are, are quite notable. Uh, it's interesting to see yeah. how that how the city is turning back on. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Uh, again, this maybe just on the free cash then. Um, just for 2021, um, again, I know you like to sort of talk free cash conversion over time down to the low 50s, obviously being much better. Um, when we sort of think about next year, um, is there any sort of discrete or you know, certain items you want to point out or you know, maybe you don't want to give us an exact item where you think the conversion falls that uh, just something, you know, just anything you want us to keep in mind when we're modeling out next year's free cash conversion. Thanks. Yeah, like I think we've been consistent, um, you know, throughout the third quarter and laying out our expectations about 2021. And and that's been, you know, to put a marker at $950 million, uh, and just lay out an expectation that we ought to do 950 or better for the full year. And, and again, you back into that. And that's, that's where we talk about double-digit growth in free cash flow. Uh, year to year. Okay. 
Um, sorry, just one last one. Uh, where do you mention some deals in Q4 that look set to close? And I think you put some numbers around those. I just didn't catch them. Well, I think Marianne put the numbers around the quarterly expectations for next year based on the $135 million we had already yeah. signed or closed. Um, and what I said is anything that we do, which we should get a few more things done this year, would be additive to that and that we would lay that expectation and those numbers in uh, in February. But in the aggregate, what we said is that if you look at what we've signed or closed and what we think will get done, you know, we'll likely go into 2021 with 2% top line growth already in hand from M&A. Okay. Yeah. Thanks again. And again, great job. Thanks. And our next question comes from the line of Hamza Mazari with Jeffries. Please proceed with your question. Hey, good morning. Thank you. Um, my, my question is um, largely around share buyback. Is there a reason why you're not buying back more stock? Uh, and, and why I ask is, you know, historically, when the company had, you know, average to slightly above average M&A years, I, I think you still bought back stock at the same time and size because your leverage is the lowest it's been in history. You're sitting on a lot of cash, free cash flows growing double digits. Uh, and, and it looks like, you know, acquisitions are not going to be as big as 2018 and 19. Even if you look out, you know, 2020 is almost done. 2021 is a big question mark. I doubt it will be as high as 2019 or 18 unless you say otherwise. So just, just any views there, uh, or any high-level thoughts or, or what you're thinking? Sure. Uh, look, we were active earlier this year in buying back our stock. We always use the word opportunistic with regards to the timing of, of when we do things because we also like to maintain flexibility for growth opportunities that come along. Um, look, uh, you tell me who's going to win the presidential election. You tell me what's going to happen to tax laws next year. You tell me what's going to happen to the stock market as a result of that. Um, but a lot of folks, as you know, talk about a sugar high if a stimulus uh, gets done, uh, which will flow through the stock market and may prop it up into early next year. And then with, if the reality of a tax law change, that could be harsh. Um, look, that could create opportunity, opportunities to buy the stock back. <laughs> Um, you know, we try to play the long road here. Uh, we try to, to look ahead at, at, you know, expectations around uh, the stock markets. Um, and, you know, I'd rather be patient and, and buy right uh, than just be a willy-nilly buyer at, at any price every day. Got it. Um, and and then my other question is is just around ESG, and and I and I I, I actually want to ask about the E rather than the S and the G. And I know you put out your sustainability report, but 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 I know you do renewable landfill gas and and recycling, but but. How do you view landfills as as part of the E equation? Do you, do you think they're misunderstood by by the ESG uh, uh, community and that they're sort of bad for the environment? Um, you know, any thoughts as to the E, where you rank there, what you can do better there? Sure, I think what we can all do better is just continue to to be more uh, upfront um, and, and more visible at what we do. Um, look, a lot of things that we talk about in our ESG report are things we've been doing for 20 plus years. We've just stayed below the radar screen and in, in telling our story. 
With regards to landfills, look, landfills, uh, you tell me, first off, I mean, if look at other economies uh, without, you know, the, the type of strict hygiene and regulatory environment around waste disposal, um, I'll put what we do in the U.S. up against any other uh, economy, and landfills play a big part of that. But landfills are also a big uh, biogas generator and renewable energy source. Um, and you see some many of our efforts uh, around increasing investments within uh, biogas facilities now that our landfills are getting more mature and, and gas generative enough to do that. Um, so by all means, I mean, landfills, it's, it, you're right, it does. Um, they do have bad names and bad connotations in many communities, many cases in which communities that weren't there when the landfills were built and built themselves up next to landfills. But um, look, it, it's a double-edged thing. Look, the scarcity of landfills turns into pricing opportunities within many markets because it is a scarce resource. It's an ever-increasing, increasingly higher cost to operate landfills and to build out landfills, and that will drive higher pricing of landfills. But again, uh, it's, it's, its source for renewable energy is one that will become better understood uh, if we tell the story right. Uh, because the opportunities there are tremendous and the returns on those kinds of investments, more importantly, uh, are incredible. Look, ESG doesn't mean you throw, you, you should go and throw away money uh, and dilute returns. I mean, we're talking about our opportunities and running the good business that not only are good for the E, as you say, but also are good for the P&L, too. Got it. And last question, I'll turn it over. Um, you know, we, we talked a lot about commercial volume. Uh, just how, how do you think this cycle is different than past down cycles for waste? Uh, I, I, you know, and at a high level, waste lags going into a downturn, lags coming out. It, it doesn't look like it's lagging coming out today. Um, and so that may be a difference. I don't know, maybe the cost structure is different because, uh, uh, you know, some of what you alluded to a little bit on the margin performance this quarter. Just, just any thoughts as to how this cycle is different for waste than, you know, prior cycles? Sure. I think you almost answered your own question in that prior cycles were, were more um, coincident with a decline in temporary activity um, and commercial stayed strong. Uh, this is a decline that um, hit commercial. Um, so the way it was hit is almost tracking the way the macro economy has been hit and GDP has been hit, meaning, um, you know, the temporary side of the business has still remained, I guess, a little more resilient than what we saw as a quick contraction in commercial. But commercial as it recovers is very sticky. Um, and so as that recovers and you see the high margin flow through, um, you know, that will continue to benefit uh, this industry. Um, but to your other point, the cost structure is different. Um, and, you know, and that's, I think that's a, a statement that could be said about uh, most businesses across multiple industries, um, you know, how we accepted uh, and how we did things, how we traveled, uh, what we spent money on, et cetera, uh, has changed. Um, and so, you know, that I don't see all those costs really ever coming back fully into the, into the P&L because we will be doing things differently. We still want, we still pine for the days that we're together, that we're having big parties, that we're spending a lot at the bar, so to speak. Um, but, um, you know, clearly as the economy reopens, as people get more comfortable being together uh, based on changes in the pandemic or vaccines, et cetera, it's still hard to see that the, the shape of how we do things is, uh, gets back to where it was pre-pandemic. And that creates a different cost structure uh, in our P&L and others. Got it. Thank you.
And our next question comes from the line of Kevin Chang with CIBC. Please proceed with your question. Hi, uh, good morning, uh, Worthing Marianne. Um, congrats on a good quarter there. M maybe if I could just dig into some of your assumptions, uh, I guess, for volumes in the fourth quarter, and maybe specifically, you know, I, I appreciate the conservatism, just, just given all that we don't know and, and some of the rollbacks in, in, um, in the reopenings in some of these economies like here in Canada and, and, and I suspect in, in parts of the U.S. Uh, has that changed how you think about maybe your bad debt assumptions as you get through the winter season, you know, just anecdotally here in Toronto, you know, a lot of small businesses have been pretty clear that if they have to get through another shutdown, they, they probably don't make it through the other side of this uh, through a winter, through, through, a, through a tough winter season. Just wondering how, how you're looking at your bad debts uh, over the next quarter or two. Sure. So, so interestingly, Lee, Kevin, we, we talked about bad debt last quarter as being one of, one of the costs, uh, if you will, uh, of COVID. And it, it's actually come down this quarter, and it's actually closer to a more normalized rate for us. And, uh, you know, we, we've talked about DSOs coming down as well. You know, a portion of that would be E&P, of course, you know, and it's also solid waste. What we're finding is that as customers come back, they're paying us. Right, so we're seeing the recovery of volumes coincidental with that is a reduction in bad debt. So that's encouraging. And, and to your point about those customers who, who aren't going to come back, as I said earlier, we're not, you know, we're mindful of the fact that cancellation relate, rates are, are still what I would say is artificially low. And so that's why we're not baking in more recovery. And we think it's prudent at this point to kind of think in terms of, current levels remaining the same. So I'm not expecting any big bad debt comeback, but I'm not expecting it to get materially worse from here at this point. Yeah, we've been cautious in how we positioned ourselves for, for potential deteriorations in bad debt. Okay, that, 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 well, that makes sense, sounds sound very prudent as well. Yeah, so, so we're already positioned for that and if it's not as bad as, as we think, again, that's, uh, that would be upside. Um, maybe my second question here, and I think Mark, uh, Mark, Mark was asking about the, the free cash flow. Um, if I just take, and, and I know it's, you'll, you'll, you'll exceed it just based on your comments today, but if I look at your, your free cash flow uh, uh, guidance, I guess your conversion from the outlook you provided last quarter, it, it's about 52% of EBITDA. Uh, you're, you're tracking well ahead of that through, through year to date. Uh, you're, you're getting good flow through, even with the challenges of EMP. If I ask this question maybe a different way, do you think you can get back to like a mid 50% free cash flow conversion of EBITDA, even with EMP sitting where it's at today, just given how strong your conversion has been through through a very challenging year already? Yeah, well, look, we've we've always said, um, you know, own us for 50 to 52, uh, love us in the years we do 55, right? Um, and so I, I would never model a, a uh, you know, do a long-term model at, at consistent 55%. Obviously, things can change as you look ahead, whether it be tax law changes in the U.S. around bonus appreciation as those uh, wean off in 23. Um, changes in tax rates, obviously, could, could influence that a little bit as well. So, look, we're still comfortable in that longer-term view of 50 to 52%, even without EMP coming back. Obviously, to your point, if EMP comes back, that's another potential boost and a tailwind to get that higher as well. But um, look, we're already well positioned to, to do the upper end of that or better uh, this year. Um, that is still leaps and bounds ahead of our peers. 
um, and uh, and the years that we do better than fifty two percent, you know, we'll just we'll we'll take that and enjoy it. For sure. Uh, and maybe just one housekeeping question for me, and maybe this to Marianne. I, I did maybe surprising to me. I did notice the core price sequentially did improve in Canada. I'm just wondering if if that's just a reflection of that sharp volume rebound you 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 noted. That you saw in Q3, or is there anything anything uh, unique that happened in Canada in, in the third quarter? Sure. So, so good point, Kevin. You you did see that increase, which went counter to right the the rest of the the price mm-hmm. movement, which of course is playing out as we expected, right? That it's stepping down in Canada. You had some PIs that were pushed out last quarter that got implemented in Q3, and so that's why you saw that it dropped a little lower in Q2 than we would have otherwise planned, and came back a little in Q3. It was a conscious decision to, to defer those price increases. Perfect. That makes a ton of sense. Th- th- thanks, and that's all my questions. Great quarter. And our next question comes from the line of Chris Murray with ATB Capital Markets. Please proceed with your question. Uh, thanks. Good morning, folks. Um, Good morning. You know, really th- thinking about acquisitions, um, you know, historically, you've always talked about acquisitions being kind of 3 to 4% of revenue as you go into the next year. Um, you know, you're kind of calling out to this year. I guess maybe as we start thinking about <clears throat> the next couple of years, you know, is it a function of kind of the law large numbers or is it just is something around the, uh, the acquisition pacing, you know, how much of that was impacted by COVID this year? And, you know, is it something that we should be thinking about, you know, getting back to that number? Um, so I'm just trying to maybe frame it over how to, how to think about, you know, acquisition growth over the next couple of years. Sure. Now, we've typically, you know, we look at a typical year and think in terms of 125 to 150 million of required revenue, right? Um, and that right there is, I'm just going to round, 2 to 3% or so of, of growth uh, in a year. Um, if you look at this year, again, we're knocking down, we've already knocked down the midpoint of that 125 to 150 and anything we do the balance of the year, we'll push that to the upper end or higher. Um, going into a year at 2% growth, obviously what we don't have in that number yet is everything we get done in 2021, which will be additive to that 2%. Um, and so, look, we're not chasing um, a growth rate uh, to your other point. Obviously, as the, as the business um, uh, grows, um, a typical year 125 to 150 will be a slightly lower percentage as, a, as time passes. But without a doubt, you episodically see larger transactions, um, you know, 50 to $100 million type revenue transactions into the mix that individually can push that 2 to 3% to something like 3 to 4%, right? Um, and so uh, we've seen that year in, year out the past few years. Um, but we always think in terms of an average year being that 125 to 150, and the percentage top line will be what it is. Okay, so just just think about that as the base number in terms of what you're what you're kind of looking for for growth. That's fair enough. Um, and then just well, go back to your ESG report. We, we always say don't own us for that, but you know, let that be upside. Sure, sure. Um, going back to your ESG report, you know, um, and and sort of your thoughts around you know, the 500 million in spending, you know, one of the things that I know we've certainly been discussing with clients is in a change of administration, probably, you know, like we saw um, in the change of the last administration, you know, different things happen, you know, RIN pricing certainly moved around with changes in regulation. Um, and I know it's hard to, to try to figure out where this goes, but, you know, certainly if you think about, you know, things like um, gas capture um, and RIN credits and even um, vehicles, 
and, and shifting there. And you know, certainly California's made some had made some disclosures about about wanting to get off, you know, any sort of uh, fossil fuel type powered vehicles um, in the next few years. You know, what's the feasibility of your ability to either accelerate or pivot um, into some of those technologies? Um, or, and I guess what I'm curious about is, you know, it still seems like early days, or do you think that the maturity of the technology is more than just a science project at this point? No, look, if you, to some of your, your observations with regards, for instance, to gas, I mean, the maturing of our landfill network uh, creates more opportunities looking ahead for biogas capture investments with very attractive uh, ROIs um, than, than the rearview mirror. Right, and so we are very bullish um, on that. And that's obviously, a, you, you mentioned the changing administration. I mean, we, we know what this, past, this current administration uh, has, has uh, how that's influenced our PNO with regards to the value of gas credits, things like that. If the changing administration happens and you know their platform, um, you know, the value of those, uh, of that kind of line of business uh, should go up uh, dramatically. Um, with regards to EV, look, we've already taken um, delivery of our first full EV uh, 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 truck. Um, obviously, we're beta testing it. We expect that to, to meet all of our weight limits and route distance limits with regards to battery life. Um, and so, look, the limiter there, while even though state regulations have passed, for instance, in California, the limiter is still the manufacturing capacity, right? Um, and so, you know, many of the, of the, of the units you see people talk about are, are EV chassis, um, but not electric bodies. Um, and, you know, the future should be a combination of, the, of both of those. So it is a full EV product. Um, so all we can do is make sure we're beta testing and positioned uh, to know how those fleets behave, um, make sure the route models are proven, make sure the maintenance cost uh, reductions are, are as promised. Um, to make sure that the, the cost of the, the incremental cost of the unit is, has the payback, um, or more importantly in markets, can we, we put it in a rate base to make sure uh, that we don't have stranded capital. So look, I think we're well positioned for all the above. Uh, we tried to lay that out in our sustainability report. I think this industry is very well positioned with regards to, to the opportunities that lay ahead with a, a, if there's a change in administration, for instance, as you point out. Um, and so, no, we feel, uh, we feel quite good about how we're laying out our money, expected returns, and more importantly, you know, what it does with regards to, uh, to broadening sustainability initiatives. And Chris, just to add one point to what Worthing said about the, the landfill gas, the biogas project, it's not as though we need to pivot or accelerate something. We're actually, we have a number of projects on the drawing board and are, are in conversation about them. And so to your point, if there's a more favorable environment, it just means that you probably move forward more quickly on things that we're already planning to do. A number of these conversations are years, already years old, right? I mean, this isn't something you just wake up and say, hey, let's do this. This is, we've been at this for quite some time. Yeah, no, that, that was actually my point. I was like, it's kind of nice to have, everybody says, let's go green tomorrow, but it, it takes some time to get done, right? So, and, that, and you worry about the technology and how resilient it is to, before you apply it. So anyway, thanks guys. Well, look, we just, we just put, uh, I think probably one of the largest robotic orders in, uh, in for our, our recycling facility. To your point, we didn't run in at version 1.0. Uh, you know, we waited for version 2.0 or later um, to make sure the technology is proven and we can get, um, you know, the kind of the, the payback that we're looking for and that uh, with that kind of deployment. 
Thanks, folks. And our next question comes from the line of Michael Hoffman with Stifle. Please proceed with your question. Hey, gang. Uh, someday, one of these days, somebody's actually going to pronounce the name of the firm right. Um, free cash flow. Can Morning. we come back to that? Um, you've given guidance of 805 to 835 for this year, 778 now. The 805 to 835, if I recall correctly, did not include the benefit of $40 million from the CARES Act. But did I understand your comment correctly, Marianne? The 778 has it in it from a reported standpoint at the moment. Yes. Year to date. That's correct. That's correct, yeah. Michael. Okay. Yes. So, but and you, your intention is to still be inside your guidance or at the top end of it. So, the expectation would be uh, everybody should be prepared for the conversion rate in 4Q isn't going to be even 50%, it'll be less because you've got a lot of cash outflow things planned for fourth quarter. That's a fair way to think about it, Michael. Yes, that would be the math behind still achieving, but, you know, we, we said we're positioned to exceed the 805 to 835, but, you know, so if you took the high end or just above that and use that conversion rate, it would absolutely below, be below what we've demonstrated our ability to do this year, which says we are paying out, you know, more outflows in Q4. Yeah. Right. Yeah, just apply a 50%, the upper end of the 50 to 52% range to our, our year-to-date EBITDA plus our guided Q4 EBITDA, and you'll get a number above the 835. That was the prior upper end of our, of our original range. Right. And, and you've always talked about Worthing, you know, what are you even getting credit for exceeding that number this year? So, you know, prepay everything you can, pull forward capital spending. So to that end, what is your revised view of cash flow from ops and capital spending for 2020? Well, you'll, it really depends on what we can take delivery of. I mean, we've already put another uh, 20 million of, of, of orders out there um, for fleet and yellow iron. Um, we're trying to take advantage of, of, uh, some units that fit our specs that are still sitting on some lots out there. If we can get that in there, um, you know, that'll be a, a kind of a good, a nice head start to the outlays for 2021. Um, obviously, you know, taxes go up in, 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 in Q4. There's another cash tax payment to do uh, middle of December. Um, the size of that's hard to determine because obviously as if that yellow wire and, and fleet comes in, that'll increase the bonus appreciation acquisitions. If they get done prior to that date, that increases the, the, the deductibility of, of acquired CapEx. Um, and so there are a lot of moving components in this thing, but what we know is that to your point, we can manage where we want to come out uh, at year end based on the flexibility that we have. It's, it's a better, it's a better conversation to have than, uh, asking, can you make your number? <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. I just, you know, you've given us a double-digit improvement year over year, 950. If I just use 10%, I'm at 865 as the starting number. Um, but I'm also curious, like, why not prepay the CARES Act instead of just having this lingering around in the numbers for two years? We, we, we have a lot of flexibility to do a lot of things, Michael. Okay. Um, I, not the, You you were very clear about telegraphing for the market in 2020, how to think about the cadence of price and volume trends. And I know you don't have a guidance out, but is there anything um, that should be noted about how to think about cadence for 21 
for instance, one Q is ugly in volume, but two Q is positive, so the first half kind of nets itself out, and then the second half is positive. Is that the right way to think about it? And then price. Sorry, go ahead. No, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, I was going to say, yes, I mean, that's, that's just the way I would characterize the volume side. And, and as, as you'll recall, in kind of a typical year for us, pricing the cadence is that on a reported basis, it always starts out high in Q1 and decreases over the course of the year, just really relating to the size of the denominator and the timing of our price increases, which the majority of which are put in early in the year, most, mostly in Q1. So, you know, the, the three and a half to four percent that Worthing talked about for price next year, you know, if you started at the at the high end there and worked your way down to the lower end, that might be a fair way to think about the, the cadence for next year. And to your point, volumes are negative in in Q1, turn positive with the easiest comp in Q2, right? And then you see that the you know, to the extent there's any reopening or improvement, more positive volumes in the back half of the year. Okay. And then um, I, I'm, I'm less about the volume than I am sort of the total number of customer on the commercial side. Do I recollect correctly that in the Great Recession, if you take the 08 through, say, 13 before the housing cycle recovered, that the lost number of customers was approaching 5%, and yeah, that happened over a very long time, and you could absorb it very gradually. Are we Are we looking at a something like that, but just more compressed based on the level of recovered if it stops here. And accordingly, you'll adjust the business model, have to do it faster, but you'll adjust it like you did 08 to 13, you improved productivity dramatically, you got you know, a lot more pricing, so on and so forth. Well, the adjustment's already in place, and I think you see the strength of the, uh, the flow through and the shape of the cost structure uh, by just even at the current levels with 65% or so of the customers um, uh, that have reached out and what 55 or more percent of the revenue, you see a 200 basis point margin improvement year over year. So I, yeah, I think the, the performance is already there to see. You're right that in the, in the great recession, it was about a 5% loss in revenue. Um, I, I use, we use revenue, not customer base, but revenue. Um, and again, you know, you look at right now, you can, you, you'll see the stats that we gave for this year. Look, the recovery that's plateaued right now, uh, but for some markets that are still expanding, uh, that's the jumping off point for, for any further recovery within that customer base. But, you know, we've already uh, kind of adjusted or adapted the shape of the business based on the realities that we currently have. We're not waiting to adjust the shape of the business. All right. And, and that's what I was I probably teased that out poorly is the point being is that anything that happens from this point forward, you're is fine tuning. You don't have to take another big swing to account for if that group never comes back. Well, because the shape of the, of the structure, the cost structure of the business has already been uh, adjusted for it. That's why you see as revenue comes back, such a high flow through. Right. Um, one of the correlations in the business has been a you know, good household formation has historically driven new business formation. So I get it's early, but in places where it's healthier, so maybe some of those secondary markets, places like that where they're longer in a cycle, are you seeing any empty storefronts starting to backfill? Is there because housing is very strong on a relative basis? We're at a million four, million and four and a half starts. So it's a pretty healthy number. Yeah, where, where you've had what I would call the 
the pandemic migration, so to speak, of, you know, out of uh, some more densely populated areas into some more rural, kind of the, the three-hour drive away from, you know, where you're currently living, as you've seen, you know, increased uh, population settlements or resettlements in the near term, um, you know, we, we have been seeing uh, storefronts open, right? I mean, it's, it, they're following the people, they're following the money. Um, but it's a, it's a tough thing to say as a broad statement that, that you know, business formation is going to follow um, household formation um, in general. Because right now, you know, most of the household formations are just folks, people moving from one home to another and deciding to, you know, re-enroll their, enroll their kids in school or do it remote um, from a, from a faraway uh, place. And again, the economic activity that's followed those people is, is following and benefiting local businesses. Okay. But there's a little bit of hope there. Well, it depends on where you live. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose that's true. All right. Thank you very much. Sure. And our next question comes from the line of Walter Spracklin with RBC Capital Markets. Please proceed with your question. Yeah, thanks very much. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So uh, I'd like to start here with uh, the contract. And, and you, you, we've gone through seven months now since COVID started, and you've n negotiated a number of contracts, both on the commercial and residential side since then. And, and Worthing, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the key differences between a contract negotiated uh, since then and what would have been negotiated before. And if you could touch on a little bit, and, and, and both in residential and commercial, you know, is pricing discussions really altered in, in terms of getting them through uh, for whatever reason? Is the term changing at all uh, uh, versus what, what happened before? And then third, is the structure of the contract uh, much different? I know, you know, you were making an effort to to move residential over to a volume base versus per household. Is there any other examples of real changes in in the contract and its nature uh, in in recent contract negotiations versus what you would have done prior to COVID? Well, our approach to contract negotiations really reflect the period in which they're being uh, negotiated, um, and those that are that are being negotiated um, right now obviously recognize that uh, labor costs are going up uh, despite. Record unemployment, um, you know, as, as with essential workers, and you've seen what we've done for our front line, that's rising labor costs. Obviously, right now we're mindful of, of, of you know, the, the shift that's occurred, already occurred, um, into higher loads within the residential. That's impacting those residential contracts. Obviously, you, you've seen the increasing cost um, to handle more contaminated uh, waste streams within the recycling side of the business. Um, and so the, the, the cost of recycling has gone up and many of the contracts that are up for renegotiation were originally done uh, back when China was still open and the cost and the profile and shape of the recycling business is fundamentally different. And so a long way of saying that many of the contracts that, that you know, are, are getting renegotiated or discussed now, um, you know, the cost structure is fundamentally different um, than, than where it might have been seven or ten years ago. Um, you know, the type of fleet that, that is being asked for uh, today versus what was running uh, under the current contract, if you have to switch over a fleet, makes it even more expensive. And so, no, the dialogue is dynamic. It's, it's reflective of the times we're in right now. Um, and you've seen in many cases, um, you know, 
easily double-digit increases um, in in pricing uh, because of those uh, those inputs. You know, commercial uh, right now. I mean, that, that dialogue hasn't changed. You see the the strength of the price that we have right now, and and especially the spread to CPI. I'd say you know one of the biggest areas um, that um, that we do well in is um, competing uh, for accounts that have been poorly serviced. Um, and, you know, we see those opportunities across multiple markets. Um, and again, that's a, a tip of the hat to, to all of our frontline folks that, um, you know, show up every day and uh, service their accounts and, and, and give us a good reputation in those markets and, and provide opportunities for our sales force to take advantage of that and, uh, and gain share where possible. That's great color. Uh, uh, for my second question here, just turning a little bit to uh, uh, trends, you, you've you've highlighted a number of things that are cause for optimism, and and, and I, I really hope that you know the reopening continues, recovery continues. But I'm seeing, you know, obviously with the new case counts in many jurisdictions going up higher than they were when everything was shut down. Uh, are you seeing any indications of uh, policy change that would reverse some of those gains in certain jurisdictions that might, if they continue in others in the same type of trend, uh, uh, result in a, a backpedal here uh, in terms of the reopening. Any risk of that in your view from what you're seeing right up into the, you know, kind of the data, uh, right up to the to the minute kind of kind of indications. And I know, you know, or is there things that are are different? I mean, schools obviously. Are, are are opening now despite higher case count than when they closed? Is it just we've understood things a little bit better about how this all works and we're taking a different approach than we did back in March? Sure. You know, I'd say we haven't seen it yet. In fact, October likely will play out a little better uh, than, than we had originally expected, um, to your point. In other words, we haven't seen a rollover in, in that. But certainly the way we have guided the quarter, um, we have assumed that there may be some, you know, that's prudent to stay cautious as we as we look ahead into November and December. We just haven't seen it yet in the numbers. I'd say the biggest um, it, right now it's more operational. As I think about what what you know what that worries me, but what we're mindful of, and that is, look, you hear it all over the media um, about COVID fatigue or, or pandemic fatigue, and um, you know uh, our, our 18,000 plus employees need to stay vigilant. In how in their operating procedures, um, in their attestations on a daily basis with regards to you know their health, uh, with regards to showing up and, and working. Because look, as you're seeing increases in in, in positives throughout many markets, understand uh, you know if you know for every one person that might test positive, if they're at the office, meaning if they're at their operating location, you know that that impacts other people uh, with through contact tracing. Um, and, you know, in some markets where you see things pop high, you know, two or three people that might pop high, you know, might cause a quarantine of a number higher than that, which makes operations, you know, that much more challenging for our local folks. And, you know, the best thing we can do is remain vigilant, remind our folks about operating procedures. Don't get, don't get COVID fatigue. Don't get tired. Don't relax your standards. Um, because I do think the next couple of months, uh, two to three months, um, you know, uh, you know, we'll be, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be pretty widespread and you've seen the numbers already pop. And so uh, as long as we continue to do 
what we know how to do, um, our folks will be safe and, 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 you know, attendance will still stay above 99%, but it's a constant reminder to our people to stay vigilant uh, throughout this. Makes a lot of sense. Thanks, thanks very much for the caller, Worthing, uh, as always. And as a reminder, if you'd like to register for a question, it is the one followed by the four. Our next question comes from the line of Noah K. with Oppenheimer. Please proceed with your question. Good morning, and thanks for taking all of the questions here today. So I'll just keep mine to one, and it follows right up on Walter's, uh, which is you know, you've got uh, obviously this uh, risk of uh, rising uh, cases again and what that might mean in terms of slowdown in activity or potential lockdowns. And so the question is, you know, you had very strong margin performance in, in 2Q. Uh, I think you commented at the time, in some cases, you know, activity bounced back so quickly in certain markets that you didn't really have time to put in structural cost changes. If we do go into a second lockdown, what might you do differently, or how do you think you'll be better positioned to handle it? Well, I, look, I, the best way to prepare for, for, you know, any restrictions is take care of your people. <laughs> Um, and look, we just uh, announced a thank you bonus and appreciation bonus ahead of the holidays for our people. Um, that's you know $800 for for more than 90% of the front line. If you joined us more recently, it may just be $400. But nonetheless, it's you know you lay that on top of supplemental wages that we've done through the year, emergency wages to for to keep people um, you know fully compensated even if they have to stay home for quarantine or childcare or to take care of family member, et cetera. Uh, raising the minimum wage to, to $15 uh, from a target standpoint um, to, to help those that, that may be below it uh, to get up to that level. Um, you know, these are all things that you've got to do to position our people to strengthen their, their kind of mental fortitude for the challenges that lay ahead. And by getting ahead of the thank, with a thank you bonus ahead of the holidays, we felt that was another way to show a support to get people, you know, steeled, so to speak, for, for what's ahead. And so if you focus on your people um, and you strengthen their commitment, uh, their health, focus on their health, their welfare, um, look, our, our people want to serve their communities. Uh, and to do that, um, they need to be positioned to, to, to stay healthy, and, uh, to, to stay financially sound. Uh, and certainly that's the way we're looking at the kind of the next two to the challenges of the next two to three months uh, Stay ahead of it in, in your support. Don't uh, don't don't lag it. And, and Noah, just to, to follow up, you made reference to the fact that the nice incrementals as those volumes came back, and and the, the commentary around not having structurally really changed the business. That's actually a good sign. What it meant is that there was such a small reduction in volumes that there really wasn't the need or the opportunity, said another way, to do something like a reroute. So it's not as though it's an issue of not being prepared. The good news is most of the markets weren't that impacted. Clearly, not that we're looking for, you know, for this, but in those more impacted markets, that's where you do make the changes and you, you actually make cuts. And so clearly, if that were the scenario, we would approach it the same way we have this time around. Makes sense. Thank you both. Thank you. And Mr. Jackman, there are no further questions at this time. I will turn the call back to you. Please continue with your presentation or closing remarks.
Thank you, Jason. Again, if there are no further questions, on behalf of our entire management team, we appreciate your listening to and interest in the call today. Marianne and I are available today to answer any direct questions that we did not cover that we're able and allowed to answer under Reg FD, Reg G, our applicable securities laws in Canada. Thank you again. We look forward to speaking to you at upcoming virtual investor conferences or on our next earnings call. Stay safe and healthy. That does conclude the conference call for today. We thank you for your participation and ask that you please disconnect your line. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.